Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. Uh, as always, thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. If you're gathered for a cross point at home, thank you for inviting the church into your living room, wherever you're tuning in from. Uh, a special shout out this morning as uh, many of our women are gone on the women's uh, retreat. Um, so that means there were some dads like solo parenting, getting their kids here this morning. So just way to go. So nice work. Um, so thank you for, for doing that. Uh, friends, it's a great joy to be gathered here uh, this morning to be able to worship Jesus through song, through the liturgy, and through opening up God's word together. And it's my privilege uh, to get to open up God's word. So if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint and we've never been introduced, my name is Jamie. I get to serve as one of the one of the pastors, one of the leaders here at the church. And we are week two in this series that'll take us all the way up uh, to Good Friday is this series called Journey to the Cross. We began it last week and it's looking at the story as, as it's told, the final days of Jesus that's told in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 26 and 27. And so we just wanted to commit a block of time over this kind of multi-week stretch leading up to Holy Week uh, to journey through that and to not miss any sort of details in the ways that that Matthew has composed his gospel to tell this account of Jesus's life. It, it's moving at this clip and then it kind of slows down and we start to get some real specific details and it's not just so that we would historically understand it, as important as that is, but we would also understand this journey that Jesus is inviting us on. What does his journey to the cross have to do with your invitation and my invitation if you're a follower of Christ to take up our cross and to follow after him? And how does the cross shape us and transform us and not just simply be something that maybe we, you know, we, we hang up in a church or we put around on a necklace or something like that, but rather how does it bring transformation in the here and now. So that's what we're going to explore together over this series and get into again this morning. So I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to cover verses 17 to 35 this morning. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. There are Bibles in the pews. You can also scan the QR code uh, that's in the pew in front of you. That'll bring up a menu uh, that'll say sermon notes and you can click that and the text is there. Any of the things I put on the slides this morning will be listed there. You can also access that at thisiscp.church and click the little next steps icon. But if you are able, would you go ahead and stand as I read our text this morning? So Matthew 26, we'll pick it up in verse 17 uh, To as a bit of a reminder. The story started with this plotting, this planning, the religious leaders to put Jesus to death. And then Jesus is anointed for burial by this woman, Mary, with this alabaster flask of expensive ointment. We looked at that last week. And then Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, goes to these religious leaders and says, I'll sell out Jesus. I'll bring him to you. And this is where we pick up the account. Verse 17 of Matthew chapter 26. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. 
it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. <clears throat> Verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, friends, I don't know what your upbringing was like as it pertained to church. Maybe you're somebody uh, that went to church like every single week. Maybe you're somebody that went occasionally, kind of like for Easter and Christmas. Uh, maybe you're somebody uh, that just, no, you've never been to church at all. In fact, being here is like completely kind of new territory for you. I don't know where you are on that spectrum, but I was somebody that grew up like going to church uh, regularly. Um, and so we would all go as a family and um, it'd be church and Sunday school and those sorts of things. And then even for a portion of my life, we would come back for uh, an evening service. And so Sunday could be very full around, around church. Uh, and, you know, truth be told, because church is a safe place to be honest, right? Let's, let's hope that that's the case. Um, uh, yeah, I would kind of in my mind be like, oh, do we have to? I, I don't know if I want to go. Um, you know, if you had told me someday like, oh, you're going to be at church almost every Sunday. Um, <laughs> you're going to be, I would have been like, oh, are you kidding me? Right? Like that was not like in the cards uh, at all. But we would load up and we would, we would get there. Um, and most of the time in my mind, I was just sort of counting down, kind of knew what the liturgy, knew the order, knew how many songs we might sing, generally how long the pastor would talk for, all those sorts of things. Because, man, I just want to get out and like hoop. I just want to go play basketball later that day, right? And so it's just like, how long are we going to, to be here? But there were those Sundays, and I don't know if it was once a month or if it was like, you know, every quarter or every six or seven weeks. I, I couldn't tell you what the kind of the rhythm to it was, but we would walk in on a Sunday and I would see kind of down near the stage, something that looked like this, right? And my heart would sink just a little bit. Not because I was anti-communion in theory, but I was like, we are never getting out of here. This is gonna go longer today. Got to pass those trays around. There's lots of people. Then there's maybe that you, you grew up in an environment like you weren't coming forward for it, right? And you're passing the tray. And then it was also like, this is taking forever. It's got to make its way all through the people. People are not efficient in passing this. Can we just like speed this thing along, right? Um, and then there was also though, like, but don't do it too fast because like my hands are all sweaty. Like I'm going to drop the tray, right? Um, having those sort of moments. But I tell you all of that and the kind of silly little story because obviously as a young kid growing up, there's a misunderstanding. Everything is maybe for me at least was centered around like, okay, how do I get out of here as quickly as possible? When 
what should have been the real highlight. Like it should have been this thing that I look forward to. I'll tell you now and how God works, like the part of the service. And if you've been part of Crosspoint for more than a week, you know, like, oh, we actually do communion or the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, different traditions call it different things. But but we have it every week. I'll explain a bit more as to like why we do that and what it means and all of that as we get into this text. But it is, I'll just let you know, like my car's on the table, like it's the highlight. Like this is the thing like I look forward to and I long for. And what we see in this journey to the cross and the, this account in Matthew 26 and 27 is that God in his kindness to us and Jesus specifically like in this meal doesn't want us left on our own to try and figure out the significance of the cross, but he gives us this great gift of this meal that we get to participate in in a regular fashion as the church. And it's one that's introduced here sometimes depicted as the Last Supper. But as some theologians have commented, that seems to be a bit of a misnomer. Like we might better refer to it as the First Supper. And it's this supper that the church has been participating in down through the ages, and it is loaded with significance. And what it does is it explains so beautifully in this very tactile, tangible way, along with the teaching around it, about the meaning the importance, the significance, like what's actually happening on the cross? How did Jesus understand his own death? Why was it so significant to him to keep pressing on towards the cross? And what do we learn about it from this meal? So that's what we're gonna explore together this morning. And the first thing I want us to see as we look at these opening verses in verses 17 to 25, is Jesus is making it very clear through his servant, Matthew, he's the one presiding over this meal, all right? And it is a meal that's rooted historically in a practice of the Jews, which we'll look at more in a moment that we touched on briefly last week. But there's a meal that's gonna take place. And I want us to see, in fact, I believe God wants us to see through this text before we get into the purpose of the meal. Let's just see like who's leading it, who's guiding it, who's ultimately in control. Like there's a picture that's being painted here that Jesus is sovereign, that he's in absolute control, that in his kindness, he's making all of these things happen. And it begins as we look back at, you know, verse 17, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they have this question, right? Everyone was coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they said, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? They're like, Jesus, what's the plan? What do you, you need us to do anything? You need us to run to the store? Like, what, what do you need, right? And Jesus says this in verse 18. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, at first glance, just looking at this, at one level, um, it really is communicating. Like Jesus is the one who's presiding over all, all of it. And he's putting things into motion. He says, go into the city to a certain man. Now, if I'm those disciples who've asked this question right away, I'm regretting it. I'm like, why didn't I just let somebody else ask him? Because he's like, go to a certain man. Does he not have a name? How am I supposed to know if it's the certain man, right? Like we don't get some of those details, but it is clearly showing us like Jesus has it all arranged. You're gonna find this certain man. He's gonna know what to do. He's gonna invite you in. Like Jesus is clearly in control of all of us. So go to this certain man and then say, my time is at hand. 
So just walk around the city, find a certain man and say cryptic phrases and he'll know exactly what, know what to do, right? But it's this beautiful thing. I believe it's related to in John 17, Jesus says it in a different way, my hour. My hour is at hand. And what Jesus is so beautifully and profoundly doing here is he's stepping, he's inviting us to see like how he's stepping into the story of the Passover, or as it said, the day of unleavened bread. And in verses 17 to 19, these three short verses, Matthew says Passover three different times, which is the Bible's way of just being like, pay attention, right? Like, it's just like zero in on this, that what Jesus is saying, I was like, oh, as we get ready to celebrate the Passover, this epic moment, the celebration, the thing in the Jewish calendar that celebrated the liberation of God's people from slavery in Egypt. He's saying, I am here to showcase what I'm going to do about your ultimate and your greatest need because Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear. Listen, your biggest issue is not in the past of your slavery to Egypt or your present day, what one could describe as your slavery to the Roman empire. But your biggest need is your enslavement to sin. And I'm going to use this story as a way to help you understand what I have been sent here to do and why my cross is actually necessary. And it's this story, which I think is so beautiful that in the celebration of the Passover, and we'll talk about some of the particular things that get reenacted in the Passover story, but it is a way of just saying, let's look at the past, present, and the future. And so it was this celebration of the past. And so there were certain elements about it that would remind the people like, oh, generations past, here's what our forefathers, here's what they went through. Here's what it was like on that night. But there were present day implications. Even in taking the bread, it's this reminder that the people of Israel were liberated from Egypt, but then they packed with them this unleavened bread because they needed food on the go. And God was saying, take this with you. But all of it was this, all of it was like rooted in this, this longing for a future reality to get to the promised land. And Jesus, well aware of these three things, all of these things kind of swirling together, steps into that story. And he's like, oh, just you wait and see what I'm about to do. Even the Jewish people historically, like we all, every church, every gathering has a liturgy, right? Like we have our own liturgy, call to worship. There's a passing of the peace, right? Even if a church doesn't think they're liturgical, like there tends to be like a certain order and things. So everybody's got some sort of liturgy and these things form us and they, they shape us. There's certain reasons like why we do the Lord's Supper every week. I don't have a verse backing me up on, on that, but there's something powerful about this. And one of the liturgies in the time of the Passover is that the people, as they thought about the past, present, and the future, one of the things that I've learned is that they would say to one another, these words that you see on the screen, this year we eat in the land of bondage, next year in the land of promise. And so just think about all the things that would have been present in that moment. Here's this one that some are wondering, like, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's gonna deliver us? We are in this place of bondage. Will next year, will we be in the land of promise and of freedom? And again, Jesus has come on the scene and saying, oh yes, but in ways you don't actually fully understand or expect. 
he's ruling, he's sovereign, he's orchestrating this whole meal. And then he says in verse 21, and as they were eating, he said, truly, which is a modern day kind of translation of what sometimes like in an old King James version would be like, thus saith the Lord. Like that's the same idea there, right? Truly, thus says the Lord, or thus saith the Lord, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And we learned last week that that was Judas and we saw some of the backstory there. But again, this is just exhibiting who's the one who's presiding over this meal? Who's the one who's really in control? Who has all authority? And Jesus speaks it. He's like, truly, the Lord speaks. He identifies himself. He's the God of the universe. And he says, one of you will betray me. He knows it's going to happen. It does not catch him by surprise. He's sovereignly orchestrating these things. Do you realize, I don't know the particulars, obviously, of what your past week has been, but there is nothing that was outside the scope of God's sovereign, loving care, his authority, his presence. And Jesus says this, look, one of you will betray me. Like he knows it's going to happen. He knows actually specifically who it is. And then Jesus says this, we drop down to verse 24, the son of man goes as it is written of him. This is one of the favorite ways that Jesus used this, this word or this phrase, son of man, was loaded with significance. It was a phrase that showed up often in the book of Daniel, speaking of this divine king who would have ultimate authority and would rule a kingdom. And that one that was spoken of, Jesus says, that's pointing to me. So again, he's speaking in such a way to let you know, like he's presiding over the whole thing. Do not miss this. And then it says, as it is written of him, which is kind of the shorthand way of saying all that the scriptures, all that the prophets were speaking of. Things like Isaiah 53 likely would have been in view here where it speaks of what you see in the book of Daniel as like this son of man, this divine king, and yet a suffering servant. Jesus is saying, oh, it's all coming together and pointing to me. The son of man goes as it is written of him. He's in control. He's sovereign. Now, a few weeks after this, just to jump ahead for a moment, Jesus has died on the cross. He is resurrected three days later. He spends some time with his disciples and promises, hey, I'm going to ascend, but when I do, the Holy Spirit's going to come. I mean, you just kind of hang tight in Jerusalem until that happens. And this is spoken of in Acts chapter one and then into Acts chapter two. So Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit comes the day of Pentecost and Peter gets up. The Peter that we read about here with all the bravado that's like, I'm going with you, I'll die. And he, you know, and Jesus is like, pump the brakes, Peter. Like, listen, man, like you are not even going to make it through the night without denying me, but I still got good work for you. This Peter gets up and proclaims the first sermon. It says 3,000 some people get saved. Like it's a pretty good day at church, right? And in this sermon, let me read to you a portion of Acts 2, 22 to 23. Here's what it says. It, this is part of Peter's sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He's like, you guys all know this. All the crowd saw, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, and then he says this, delivered up according, do you see the language here? The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. 
this is part of his plan. Yes, it's true that it would be better for Judas had he never been born. We're gonna talk about responsibility in a moment, but don't miss that Peter speaking God's word, this truth says this was part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God orchestrated it all. He's sovereign over it all. He's presiding over all of it. And so as Jesus presides over this meal, it's pointing us to the reality. He's presiding over the whole universe, over everything. But then it says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so throughout the scriptures, right? Like we can read things and we might wonder like, well, is God sovereign or are we responsible? And the Bible continually keeps answering that, yes. And is there a mystery in that? Of course there is. But let's not miss for a moment that it's communicating God's sovereignty. And yet it says like, you're responsible. And he's not just speaking to the people way back then. Like that, as we see a few verses later in Acts 2, it says the people were cut to the heart. Like, does that cut you to the heart? Does it cut me to the heart? Have I grown indifferent to the reality of the cross? Have I grown indifferent to, to what it costs Jesus? Do I think that somehow, yeah, those people, those crazy people back then, like they put him on the cross rather than seeing like my sin, my rebellion put him there. Like I'm part of the problem. It's not like we're so enlightened here in 2024 that we've, we've dealt with the sin issue that's gone away right? Like no one would say that. And so we have to acknowledge like, oh, we're part of that. So yes, God is sovereign, but there's this responsibility. And in light of this responsibility, one of the things that we see, right, is this question that the disciples ask, right? When he says, one of you will betray me. And they're like, Lord, is it I, Lord? And we're not to walk around with, with this like, false sense of guilt or this shame because Jesus really has paid for it all, like getting ahead of myself. Like this is what the cross speaks to. And yet we shouldn't lose sight of how we've contributed. Like at the end of the day, like our sin put him there. And if we're gonna rejoice in all that Easter Sunday has and this glorious new life that we brought into, we need to see the cross growing larger and larger in our life by realizing, oh my goodness, like there's a holy God and I am not holy. and. There is a depth to my sin still present in my heart that like, as I stare into the beauty of who Jesus is in his kindness, it gets revealed to me so that I have more of a dependency, more of a surrender to Jesus and to his cross. And so that question, like, is it I, Lord? And that's a question that's asked. I think this is worth pointing out for a moment. Did you notice how they asked, the 11 asked versus how Judas asked? They all say, is it I, Lord? And that's the posture, I think, that's the way a follower of Christ should, should ask the questions like, oh man, like what in my heart, Lord? Like, where's the sin? Where's the rebellion? Where's the lack of belief? And it's under the banner of like, you're Lord, you're sovereign, I, I'm committed to you. But Judas says, is it I, rabbi? Was Jesus a rabbi? Absolutely. Meaning, was he a teacher? Yes. But I have to wonder, is what it would seem, right? Is that Judas kind of follows that path of what is so prevalent today of like, oh, Jesus is a good teacher, but I don't really want him Lord of my life. There should be this freedom that the gospel produces to say like, Lord, what's going on in my heart? Where are those places of, of still rebellion and lack of belief? I love the way Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary on Matthew says this about this passage, these particular verses. He says, so don't you, oh man, 
and woman and child of religious privilege. Be presumptuous in your personal relationship with Jesus. The 11 apostles asked, is it I, Lord? And we must never grow old of asking that same question. We want to have an appreciation for the grace of God. Part of that is us wrestling with and saying, oh man, do I, do I realize what he's done for me? Do I realize the, the beauty of being a new creation? Do I realize that, that Jesus, like what he took, forces us to kind of wrestle with this. Like, what do we do with that guilt? When we mess up, how deeply do you understand the gospel? Meaning, do you run right back to Jesus? Or is there a sense of like, no, like I, I got to stay away for a bit. I certainly can't be around God's people. If people really knew my story, if they really knew what I'd done, like I, certainly God wouldn't love me. God's people wouldn't love me. And when we respond in that way, I think we communicate like we have a very shallow like understanding of the gospel. This should be the place like we're running to. Like I got, I got to be with God's people who are going to point me and remind me of what is actually true. Like all week we are shaped by stories about like, it's a narrative, right? Like we're being discipled by the culture that says it's up to you. And we strive and we give our best effort, but we cannot get ourselves clean. I will use an admittedly silly story that involves a prank and I'm 100% pro pranks, okay? Um, just in case you're you're wondering. You might've seen one of these videos. It's, I don't know where I first saw it, right? Like it circulates on social media. You've probably seen it on YouTube, whatever, but it's, uh, uh, and this has been reenacted a, a few times. Uh, here's the one that I have in mind. Um, I'll put a still image of it. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, those of you, some of you are like, oh, I know this. Um, and you're already starting to laugh inside. It's beautiful. Um, but let me explain in case you haven't, haven't seen it. Um, that is a common scene, right? Like you go to the beach and there's like those outdoor showers um, that you're just like, hey, rinse the sand off, do that. But it's, it's public, right? Um, and in that particular scene, this guy's, rinsing off, right? Like he's, he's, you know, he's got some shampoo and he's doing, doing that. Um, and he doesn't realize that there's a guy kind of hiding behind that wall. And every time the guy puts his head under the, the water and the water's, you know, hitting his head and he probably can't hear as much that's going on. The guy squirts more shampoo on it. And the guy just starts going, he's thinking he's rinsing his hair out. And he's like, there's more, it's multiplying. Right. Um, and he starts going and it finally seems like it's starting to rinse out. And the guy squirts more on his head and it just goes on for a few minutes. And it's a colossal waste of time, but awesome at the same time, right? I'm watching this. And, and as you see this unfold, the guy starts getting intensely frustrated. Also, I don't know if I'm pulling a prank on that dude. He like beat all of us up, right? But like, anyway, um, but in this, like he just starts freaking out and he's just like, ah, it's like, he's literally like pulling his hair. He's like, where is this coming from? And the more effort he gives, the more problematic it becomes. And that's a silly illustration, but if we can take it from that realm for a moment and start to see here that the truth, what Jesus is trying to drive at is this, listen, our best efforts, like we cannot do it. We cannot clean ourselves up. And the more we actually try and do it, the worse the problem actually gets. And Jesus is saying, oh, my friends, like I've got like, I want you to understand what I'm doing with this meal so that you would actually understand what I'm going to do on the cross and how liberated you can actually be. So he speaks of the purpose of this meal and he lays it out so beautifully as he begins here to reenact 
what would have been this very traditional Passover story. We've talked a little bit about it, but there's this reenactment that takes place. And so Jesus, we get to verse 26 and it says this, now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, if you've been around the church for quite some time, you've heard this, or if you've been here for a while, we always read out of 1 Corinthians 11 when we get ready to take communion. And it says things along these lines. What Jesus is doing in this moment though, would have been jarring because every year the Passover would happen. And these disciples would have grown up. They would have been familiar. They would have known the liturgy. They would have known the things. And the person who's presiding over it, right? Who called everybody together. It's Jesus here leading this would pick up the bread and what they expected him. I imagine they're sitting there and they're probably paying attention. Maybe there's a couple in the group that are just like, you know, joking around. I don't know. I don't know how to picture them in in this moment, right? Um, Maybe they're not fully paying attention and they would expect though to hear, this is the bread of our affliction. Something along those lines would have been spoken. And in the place where they should have heard that, Jesus, so far he's doing all the things that they would have expected, right? There's the bread, he picks it up and he says, take, eat, this is my body. Like this would have been like a scratch on the record. Like, whoa, whoa, what what just happened? What did he just say? Like what in the world is happening? This is, take, eat, this is my body. Like what does he mean? And I imagine there must've been in that moment, uh, a confusion, a bit of like, did, did, does he realize he messed that up, right? Like, what is, what's going on here? He's usually better than this. He's on top of his game normally. Like, what's happening? And before they can probably figure this out, he moves into the next statement. And so traditionally in a Passover, there, there would have been the bread. And then there also would have been four cups of wine, each representing these promises, four particular promises that show up in the Exodus story. And so it would have been a common occurrence for the person presiding over it to pick up one of those cups and talk about the promises. And so Jesus goes and picks up one of the cups. Some scholars speculate it's the third cup. Doesn't tell us. So we'll go with the third cup. But anyway, um, picks it up, right? It says, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. He said, drink of it, all of you. So far, they're like, okay, he's back on script, right? For this is my blood of the covenant or the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, jarring, like, wait, what is he doing? Like, why have, why has he taken it off script? This is not the liturgy that we're supposed to be following. And I think what can end up happening that we need to pause and consider this for a moment is what Jesus wants to make abundantly clear. It's like, hey, I'm stepping into this story, but this whole story has been pointing to me. Do you really see, do you really understand? Like I'm about to have my body pierced. I'm gonna have nails put through my arms and my feet. I'm gonna have the flesh off my back ripped off. I'm gonna have a crown of thorns pressed into my brow until the blood runs down. I'm gonna have a spear put through my sides. Like this is, this is my body and it is broken. That's what's gonna happen. And then he speaks of this cup and he says, this, blood, this cup is the, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out. And it says, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. It's this language here of like in the place of, 
this is happening. Like somebody else should have had their blood shed. Oftentimes you think about it this way, like people can think about the cross and just as a general level, sometimes I think if you were to ask somebody, whether they're in the church or not, sort of like, why did Jesus die? And sometimes what you hear is a, is a general like, well, he died to, to show us that he loves us. And I was reading through an old sermon from Tim Keller from, I don't know, 24, 25 years ago. And he kind of ran with that idea a, a bit. And so I want to give credit where credit's due. So this is his illustration, but I'll, you know, put myself into the, the, the illustration. He says, talking about like, okay, let's just play that out for a moment. So my wife right now is away at the women's retreat, right? Um, if all goes well, she'll be home tonight um, and I'll be right in my world once again, okay? Um, and uh, so let's imagine uh, tonight, like we, she gets home and I'm like, hey, Heather, let's just go. I wanna hear how your time was away and um, I haven't eaten in days, so let's figure this out. Anyway, um, and, uh, and let's, let's, go for, let's go for a walk. Um, and so let's say we go walking through our neighborhood and then we, we actually go a little bit further and we kind of end up like near a busy intersection. As we're walking along and there's kind of cars whizzing by, I'm just like, oh man, Heather, I've missed you so much. So grateful. I, I love hearing how the Lord worked in your life over this weekend, but man, I missed you and I'm so glad you're here. And I, I just want to show you how much I love you. And she's like, oh, and she's so moved, right? And then I step into traffic to get hit by a car. There's no part of her that's going to be like, oh, he loved me so much. She's going to be like, he's even dumber than I thought, right? Like, me stepping out to die for her is the silliest, stupidest thing in that moment, unless it was a story of there's a car that was ready to hit her. And in that moment, I saw it and I moved her out of the way and I took the hit instead. One is just foolishness that makes no sense at all. And sometimes we put Jesus in that kind of, oh, he died on the cross to show us how much he loved us. That's dumb. Unless we understand that, like, oh, no, 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 he was. He was sacrificing. Like, this is substitution language. What's happening here is Jesus saying, like, for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. Like, if I don't die in your place, you're going to die. You're going to drink the cup of God's wrath, but I will willingly do it myself. That's what's taking place here. And what's so fascinating is Matthew tells this account, and there's the details about, about the Passover. But have you noticed, or maybe considered, right, like, what's noticeably absent. What is actually missing here? There is not a mention. I mean, the bread and the cup, those are significant. But like, what's the big part of the feast, right? What's the big thing? The Passover lamb. No mention of it here in the text. What's missing? It's an intentional, because Jesus is saying, there is a better lamb that is here. And I will make the ultimate sacrifice. I will be substituted in your place. And what those four-legged creatures could never hope of ultimately accomplishing, I'm going to do once and for all. At the heart of what is taking place. So we don't just put this in the realm of like, oh, he died for us because he loved us. But we see, no, like he had to die for us if we were going to have any hope of life. And yet he joyfully did it that he stepped in this beauty, this beautiful thing of substitution. John Stott, I quoted him last week, his book, The Cross of Christ, says it this way. It's a quote I've used before, but it just so beautifully sums up what's taking place here. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate. He says, the concept of substitution may be said to be, to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. 
For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. And God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. The heart of what's taking place, the purpose of this meal, is this substitution. That's why Paul would later write to the church in Corinth, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God all of Jesus's righteousness flowing to us and all of our sin, the wrath that like should have been poured on us, like all of that flows towards Jesus. Now friends, that's the purpose. He wants us to understand the cross. So we're not free to just interpret it any old way we want. He gives us this meal. And we'll look briefly. There's going to be more of this to explore in the, the coming weeks, but there's some like predictions that take place, but there's, there's some promises here I want us to see as we close. So we look at verse 29. Jesus just lays out this beautiful meal. And then he says this. He speaks of a day where he will eat this meal. He'll drink again this wine. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's looking around a table and he's speaking specifically to the 11 who know him as Lord. And Jesus, think about the order of this. He knows what he's about to to say that we have in verses 30 to 35, right? They're all going to fail. They're all going to run. They're all going to mess up. And Jesus is saying, hey, here's what I want you to know. You are going to enjoy this, what we're doing now, but it's going to be the marriage supper of the lamb. Do you have any idea where this story is heading? Oh my goodness, there's a feast that awaits and I will drink this cup. I'll drink it new in this whole new reality. And I'm not gonna drink it in isolation. And I'm not gonna be there with the people that all had it together unlike you mess ups because there would be nobody else in heaven, right? In the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus is saying, I'm going to drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Because of this substitutionary work, this is the story now that you get to step into. And there's a day coming where this is just a little appetizer, a little foretaste to what awaits us. And there's gonna be this epic party and Jesus is gonna be presiding over the whole thing, right? And he's throwing this feast and it goes on forever. And none of the goodness ever runs out. And he's like, we're gonna celebrate together. We're gonna be together. And then he says this, like right on the heels of that, basically to summarize, you will all fall away. He literally tells them, right? Like the shepherd is going to be struck and all the sheep are going to run in a bunch of different directions. And with this audacity and this bravado, you know, like Peter, you know, is just demonstrating that he has very little emotional intelligence, right? He's totally not self-aware at all. He just declares in this moment, like, not me, right? Like, I don't know about these other guys, but like, I'm going to see it through, right? And Jesus 
in his kindness. Peter said, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. And Jesus says, truly, which is our word again for what? Thus says the Lord. I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, while a little girl asks you about me, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And I just sort of all the picture it as like all the rest of the was like, yeah, yeah, what he said, we're with him, right? Like, and it just ends right there, this section. And friends, you want to talk about like the security that we have? Because here's the, the truth of the matter. You will all fall away. That's my story. Is it I? Yeah, it's me. Is it you? Yeah, it's is you. It's all of us falling away. And yet I love this picture that Jesus is laying out. You will all fall away, but the bread and the cup, my grace and mercy are still here for you. I'm going to drink it with you. We get to be with God. So in this world, which is constantly telling like we have to perform, we have to do like, just rest. Imagine the security that we would feel if we really understood this. We get to be with Jesus. He's secured this for us. When we walk into a room and we don't know how we're going to be received, if anybody's going to talk to us or like, you know, or the things at work, like, I don't know that they even see the work that I'm doing. I never get acknowledgement, like all the things that play to our insecurities, right? We can start to spiral to a dark place. Like, what if we just remembered for a moment that Jesus is like, hey, you can be with me. Like, you're good. You got it. And, and I know you're going to mess up. I know you're going to deny me with your words and with your life. And you're going to have times where you, you don't believe, but you, you're going to be with me. Like, I've got you. There's a promise there. There's a security there because Jesus, of what he's done on the cross. And so friends, we'll close with this. The question becomes, will you and I eat and drink deeply at God's grace? In the book, The King's Cross by Tim Keller, he says it this way. Let this be part of our preparation for coming forward for the meal together today. Jesus says, take it. And he lets us know that we have to take what he is doing for us. We have to receive it actively. You don't get the benefit of food unless you take it in and digest it. You can have a meal piled high in front of you, all the food cooked to perfection, and you could still starve to death. To be nourished by a meal, you have to eat it. The excellent preparation of the food doesn't help you if you're not willing to pick it up and to take it into yourself. Taking it is the same as saying, this is the real food I need. Christ's unconditional commitment to me. Friends, you can't get that food anywhere else. And Jesus has given us this meal as a reminder of his unbelievable, unwavering, unconditional commitment to you and to me, the people that on our own fall away. And he just keeps welcoming us back to the table, be nourished from this means of God's grace that he's given to us. So we're gonna participate, not in the thing that my heart dropped as a little kid being like, oh, the service is gonna go on. But we're, this, is, like, this is the highlight. This has all been building to this and we get to do this together in a moment. But let me pray and I'll give us some instructions. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word, for this text. Thank you for, Jesus, for your kindness of giving us this, this meal that we can partake in. 
and that it's more than just something of, of a symbol, but it's part of you being spiritually present here with us, um, and that it is a, a means of your grace to us. And so, God, I, I pray that we would feast upon you, about you, on your, Jesus, your unwavering commitment to us. That for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, scorning its shame. And God, I would pray for any here this morning who have not known that level of commitment, who've been, been trying to just earn it on their own. May they see today and come to believe in the unwavering, unconditional commitment that Jesus has and that he has offered. May we see and experience that in this meal. May we be reminded the community that we're part of. God, I pray, yeah, for any who have entrusted that today would be the day that they would take and that they would eat and that they would drink in God's grace. Would you nourish all of us in that same way? We need your constant grace and your mercy. And so we thank you for this meal. Work for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.